right, we are back. Uh, we've just been talking a bit about an obituary in regards to Phil Agee, but uh, it's in this part of the program that we usually do this, and we have one other person to note the passing of today. Actually, two. We have to note the passing of conservative icon William F. Buckley, the founder of National Review magazine and longtime conservative spokesman. In fact, there was a great joke back in the 60s that uh, the definition of a conservative was someone who doesn't understand Bill Buckley but agrees with him. One thing I remember about Buckley, I remember a lot of things about Buckley. One that some journalist once said that when you interview William Buckley, he speaks in a perfectly punctuated paragraph. You just take it down, put in the commas, the apostrophes, the quotation marks, and print it. He apparently was a legend at National Review for dashing off his columns in like 20 minutes. He was quoted by the New York Times Book Review in 1986 as saying, I am, I fully grant, a phenomenon, but not because of any speed in composition. I asked myself the other day, who else on so many issues has been so right so much of the time? I couldn't think of anyone. And no, Buckley was not noted for his modesty. Noted the Associated Press, on the platform he was all handsome reptilian languor flexing his imposing vocabulary ever so slowly, accenting each point with an arched brow or rolling tongue, and savoring an opponent's discomfort with wide-eyed glee. The man certainly had a style about him. Noted uh, Joan Didion, who uh, was a non-conservative contributor to National Review, I was very fond of him. Everybody was, even if they didn't agree with him. Of course, uh, no, no word yet from Gore Vidal on the Buckley obituary, in 1968, Buckley and Vidal were set up as the conservative and liberal commentators upon things like the Democratic National Convention. After Vidal repeatedly referred to Buckley as a neo-Nazi during the first debate, Buckley said, Listen, you damn queer. You call me a neo-Nazi one more time and I'm going to punch you in the mouth. At least, that's what people on the East Coast heard. Uh, we on the West Coast had that part cut out of the debate. But uh, Buckley was an undeniable success over a five-decade period. Uh, it was noted that few could have imagined such a triumph of conservatism who had been marginalized by a generation of discredited stands, things such as the isolation preceding the U.S. entry into World War II. But it was noted that liberals so dominated intellectual thought that the critic Lionel Trilling once said there was no conservative or reactionary ideas in general circulation. Well, for better or worse, and sometimes it was for the better, there are now. Our other obituary is that of the scientist Robert Jastrow, who passed away last week. Jastrow was a longtime advisor to NASA and a frequent talking head on TV. He was a writer of popular magazine articles and the author of the well-regarded 1967 bestseller Red Giants and White Dwarves. In 1992, Jastrow became the chairman of the Mount Wilson Institute, which runs California's Mount Wilson Observatory, which still does science to this day, although it's no longer on the cutting edge. My friend Colleen, who used to work at Mount Wilson, would get a call from Jastrow, I believe, every night and ask what it is they were going to look at that night. Although he was a pretty good astronomer, uh, Jastrow unfortunately had no qualms about blending science and politics, and in 1985, he published a book titled How to Make Nuclear Weapons Obsolete, a book which supported Ronald Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative. 
which was frankly an amazingly dumb idea. Jastrow later was openly skeptical about global warming. Nevertheless, his accomplishments were many. He was uh, the founding director of the Goddard Institute for Space Studies. He worked on such long-range robotic probes as the Voyager, Pioneer, and Galileo space missions. He was described as a natural teacher who favored sharp, clear language. In 1969, he described the 50 pounds of rocks and soil that Apollo 11 brought back to Earth as the Rosetta Stone of the history of the solar system. And speaking of these strategic defense initiative, uh, so-called missile shield, we think that's what was really was going on with uh, the Pentagon's um, using a Navy missile to knock down the supposed uh, errant spy satellite. Excellent article in the B last week in the open forum section, uh, titled On Space Diplomacy, article by Greg Autry, lecture at the Mirage School of Business, and Peter Navarro, business professor at UC Irvine. They noted that the public safety argument in the shootdown strains credulity. Beyond a few hundred yards from the point of impact, the hydrazine gas in the spy satellite would have dissipated with very little effect. It is far more likely the Pentagon had a hidden agenda and a crowded one at that. One goal was certainly to prevent the spy satellite and its equipment from falling into enemy hands, but the Pentagon's shootdown was, was likely also a belated tit-for-tat response to China's January 2007 anti-satellite weapons test when it used one of its own weather satellites for target practice. Noted the authors, the only reason China needs to develop anti-satellite weaponry is to disable America's military satellite system during times of conflict. And the Bush administration was clearly angered at China's provocative test. But here's the irony. A U.S. administration that went way out of its way to correctly brand China's test as a ruthless act of an outlaw nation now turns around and does virtually the same thing. When, uh, when Bush Cheney took over the White House, they made no bones about the fact that they didn't like the anti-ballistic missile treaty with the Soviet Union, which basically kept space demilitarized, and we unilaterally, that's we the U.S., unilaterally withdrew from the treaty. In keeping with this strategic defense initiative mentality, there are those who want to seize the high ground of space, using the excuse that such a system would be defensive. The truth is, any technology that could fry a satellite orbiting the Earth could certainly be turned around and pointed back down the other way. The SDI is no more defensive a weapon than a pistol, which we know, by the way, is now being carried on the International Space Station. And speaking of... Uh, military budgets, which we were not, but we should be now. The Air Force now says that unless their budget is in dramatically increased and soon, the military's high-flying branch won't dominate the skies as it has for decades. Yes, the claim is that after six years of wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the Air Force's aging jet fighters, bombers, cargo aircraft, and gunships are at the breaking point, and... Expensive, ultra-modern replacements are needed fast. This might be a good time to review the other story from uh, last weekend uh, related to the Air Force. That is the B-2's crash in Guam. The B-2 is, of course, the bomber that the Air Force needed to have to replace the aging B-52. And since its mission, as envisioned in the late 70s and early 80s, was to fight the Soviet Union, great pains were taken to make it invisible to radar. There was a huge trade-off in terms of uh, efficiency. 
that went into that uh, ability to evade radar. But the program went ahead in spite of the fact that the USSR subsequently collapsed, which now has the Air Force using a radar-evading bomber to bomb places that have no radar. Noted Scott Cannon writing in the Kansas City Star, Once projected for a much larger fleet, only 21 B-2s were made at a cost of $2.2 billion a copy with hundreds of millions of dollars more spent on subsequent repairs and upgrades. The B-2 was not such a good investment. Of course, it was better than the B-1, the originally envisioned replacement of the B-52, which, if my memory serves me correctly, after spending about $100 billion to develop, they built exactly one. But I could be wrong on that. If you have some up-to-date information on the old B-1, please send it to us at info at radioparallax.com. We should mention before leaving the topic that, by the way, if it rains on a B-2, then it's much more visible on radar afterwards. And I well remember Will Durst's comment on the B-2 back in the 80s that, yeah, I could just envision a Soviet radar operator looking over the scope and saying, hey, I don't see any airplane, but but there's a guy in the crouching position at 30,000 feet. We've only got about two minutes left, so I do want to note that Ralph Nader is seeking the presidency as an independent for the fifth time. Now, don't get us wrong. In some respects, we consider Ralph Nader to be a national hero. But as Barack Obama correctly pointed out, when Nader claimed back in 2000 that there was really no difference between Al Gore and George Bush, he was wrong. And lest you forget, it was the Nader vote both in New Hampshire and Florida that swung both those states from the Gore column to the Bush column. And had either gone to Gore, he'd probably be president today. And we'd probably actually be dealing with the issue of global warming. And who knows, we might not be in Iraq either. All right, final item of the day. Scientists have reported a 70-million-year-old fossil of a giant frog from Madagascar which could have eaten dinosaurs. The frog was dubbed Beelzebufo, which is roughly Latin for the frog from hell. The frog's closest living relatives are found today in South America, which again provides geological evidence that Madagascar was once connected to South America as part of Gondwana land. And I hope you caught on KVIE the special with David Attenborough on Amber last Tuesday. Attenborough showed how fossils from the Dominican Republic of ants trapped in amber match those of the honeypot ants currently found in Australia, showing that, again, fossils can actually teach you something about ancient geology. It was a truly great special on amber with David Attenborough. They actually addressed the issue of uh, Jurassic Park. Was it feasible? And at one point, David Attenborough referred to, yes, when my brother appeared in Jurassic Park, you have to ask, how does one family produce two such distinguished sons? And no, I was not referring to Barbara Bush. Anyway, the Attenborough boys are British, and I guess we can't claim them as national treasures, but you know what? I think we will anyway. That's it for the show. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to Jen Cow, Dan Sung of KUCI. We'll see you next week at the same time, which represents our 300th archive show done here at KDVS.
And yes, you've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.